you have a Bible, if you turn to Acts chapter 2. So we've been looking at Acts chapter 2, verses 41, and, and specifically verses 42. So this will be the last preaching, teaching on that. So we're going to be talking about the prayers. But in Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 41... It says, Then they that gladly received his word, Peter's word, were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Wow. And those 3,000 souls and the 120 that were already part of the church, verse 42, it says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. So we've been looking for the last few weeks in what I believe are the foundational elements of a New Testament church. We just read it's the apostles' doctrine or teaching, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and prayers. And so we said that the order they're given in, it isn't just insignificant or just a random order, but they're intentionally listed, I believe, the way they are. So the order is important. Now, they're all important. There's no one of them, like we said, they're the four pillars that are holding up the church. You take one of them out and you've got problems. The church is going to fall apart. But it's an order of necessity. So we said the apostles' doctrine of necessity must be first because it defines the other three. So our fellowship here in Shelbyville Christian Assembly is based on like beliefs and doctrines. That's why we're here. That's why all of us are here and we're not in a Catholic church, we're not in a Baptist church, or we're not in a Presbyterian church. So it's not that we don't have brothers and sisters in those churches. But our doctrinal beliefs with them differ as a basis of fellowship in the sense of our church fellowship, right? Not that we can't have fellowship with them, but as far as our church fellowship. So we don't claim to have all the light. And others have light that we can learn from. Believe me. They really do. We don't have all the light. They have light that we can learn from. But our goal here as a church is to follow as best we can what is the correct doctrine or the apostles' doctrine, what the Bible teaches. That is our goal, and that is why we are here and not somewhere else. So doctrine also, that's the Apostles' Doctrine, and it talks about the breaking of bread or communion. And we believe that our communion cup is symbolic. So the Apostles' Doctrine even defines this as symbolic of the death of our Lord Jesus Christ as a penal substitute who took our place. And that is important. So he received on that cross the curse that we deserve for breaking the law. In other words, as it says in 1 Corinthians 11, his body was broken for you and for me. So he was not just merely an example in his death on the cross. He was that. It was, he was not a ransom paid to Satan. Not, the cross was not merely a demonstration of God's love, even though it was that, wasn't it? But it wasn't just merely that. And we know he wasn't a sinner that went to hell, right? We know that. But those are doctrines. 
So we're saying that's important because those are, all of what I just said, there's other churches that they believe that's what the cross is all about. But we don't. I don't primarily believe that that is what the, the cross is all about. And we hold to the doctrine that the cross teaches that the punishment of sin that was due you and me was placed on the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross. And he was sinless and holy. He has always been sinless and holy at all times for all eternity period that's the way we what we believe and so today we want to say our doctrine also teaches us and leads us and enables us to pray in one accord so we believe don't we based on doctrine that God is sovereign over all events that take place good and evil totally sovereign in control of everything why do we believe that because of what We've been taught, don't we? And we believe also, don't we, that nothing is too hard for our God. Today, not that he did it back then, but he doesn't do those things today. We believe nothing is too hard for our God. And why do we believe that way? Because of the doctrine that we've been faithfully taught since we've existed here as a church. And we also believe that God positively answers the prayer of faith based on his promises, don't we? And why again? Because of what we have been taught, the doctrine that we've been taught. So as a church, you know what that means? That means we can pray in one accord for someone that is in a trial of faith. And I'll tell you, most churches don't hold to those doctrines that I just said as far as what concerns prayer. And I'll tell you, what they'll pray is, if it be thy will concerning the promises of God. And we say, well, we already know what God's will is. It's right there in the promise. We don't need to pray, if it be thy will, right? So we can pray with one accord with a brother and stand with them in prayer on someone that is standing on the promises. We can intercede with them and on their behalf and for them, can't we? <laughs> we really can. And let me also add that I also believe that God extends his grace to those that have failed to hold on to a promise. I believe that. And that he will have mercy on them and restore them because he did it for Peter. I want to add that in there because that's important. So here we see that a church has to be in one accord, and that one accord in prayer has to be based on doctrine. Everything has to be based on doctrine. So it is of necessity the first of the three. And so you may be asking yourself, maybe you're not, I'll ask it for you. Why is then prayer last on the list? You'd be thinking, man, isn't prayer important? I thought it was really important, and I'm telling you, it is important. And the reason it's last is because it has to undergird or support the other three pillars. Because only prayer does something that the other three can't do. You know what prayer does? It brings the presence and power of God into our midst. The other three don't do that. So a church can be 100% doctrinally correct. And there's a lot of them out there that in a sense are. But 
you know, without the presence of the Holy Spirit in the midst of it, you know what a church like that becomes without the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, even though their doctrine is spot on? They become like the church of Sardis in Revelation. And it says in there, you have a name that you live, but the Lord says you are dead. You've got the right name. You've got the right storefront. You've got the right doctrine. But without my presence and power of the Spirit, you're a dead church. And that's what can happen. And so a church can have all kinds of fellowship programs and get-togethers, but without the presence and activity of the Spirit, there is no true spiritual fellowship or growth that is taking place within that church or that body, right? It just becomes basically a Christian club or a Christian social gathering. So prayer, it may be last, but it is not least by any means. It is vital. So ask the question, and so then how is that presence of the Holy Spirit brought into our midst? How is it brought into our midst? And I'll tell you how the Holy Spirit is poured out. How is it poured out? We talked about it Wednesday. How is it poured out in Acts chapter 2? In answer to prayer. Weren't, weren't they the 120? Weren't they, what did we read? They were with one accord in prayer for 10 days, waiting for that promise that had come. And then it's, it says the Lord Jesus Christ, given, by, given the Spirit, the Holy Spirit by the Father, He is the one that pours out, poured that out upon those people. And for all of us here that have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it is because our Lord Jesus Christ has poured it out on us individually. Amen. And we can just love Him that much more for it. We really can. And here's the thing. We need to remember, guess who's doing everything he can to oppose that? The devil. He really is. Listen to this quote by Samuel Chadwick, who's written some books on prayer and is just a godly man. Listen to what he said. He said, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. That's his one concern, is to keep me and you from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. He trembles when we pray. And I would ask you then, how much do you pray? Because the fact of the matter is, most people don't pray much. They really don't. And what we need to understand, let me, let me give you another quote. William Cowper, who was a hymn writer, he was a friend of John Newton that wrote Amazing Grace. Listen to what he said. Satan trembles when he sees the weakest Christian on his knees. The weakest Christian on his knees calls the devil to tremble. And so what we need to understand here is, you know, you think, man, I just don't feel like praying. It's hard for me to get into it. And what we, we need to understand here is it's just not a matter of praying like I decide to go ride my bike in the park. Because when you go to pray, you have a living being who is trying to hinder you from doing that. A living spirit, a living being who's coming at you named the devil. And he works with all of his subtlety to give you a thousand reasons not to pray. Tell me he doesn't. And he'll try whatever he can to talk us out of praying. So I would say the devil doesn't care how much we preach, how correct it is, how much we worship how many mission trips we take, how much we hand out tracts. He doesn't care how much of any of that we do. He really doesn't, as long as it is not undergirded 
by prayer and the power of the Holy Spirit. We do as much of that as he wants to because doing that, he laughs and applauds our efforts if they're not filled with the power and presence of the, of the Holy Spirit. So here's what we need to see. We need to see we have a great need for God's presence and power. And when we see that need, then we might overcome Satan's attempts to discourage us from praying, either individually or to discourage us from praying corporately, right? And so guess what? We have got to be thirsty, don't we? And needy. And when you're that way, you will press through the barriers that he places in your way. Because the devil places many roadblocks in our, in our way to keep us from praying. He really does. I'm too busy. I'm too tired. I, every time I pray, I fall asleep. And there's dribble hanging on the seat from where I fell asleep with my mouth open, right? Too tired, too busy. My prayers are so weak, so why try? I've got to text. I've got to watch TV. I've got to talk. I'd rather talk than pray. And I would rather talk. I'd rather read my Bible. I'd rather read a book. In my flesh, I'd rather do all those things than pray. Honestly, isn't that the way it is? Because the devil, he doesn't care if you do all that stuff. He's not working against you there. But you know what his greatest roadblock is to all of us in here to keep us from praying? Sin. Sin in our life, it'll keep you off your knees. Because your conscience will say, ah, it's not going to do me any good. Why waste my time praying? My life's not right with the Lord. The biggest roadblock. So I'd ask the question is, how needy? Are we as a church? So remember Wednesday night when I said they were pouring out that water every day that high priest led that procession during the Feast of Tabernacles and those people would see him pour that water at the base of the altar in the temple and as a result of seeing that happen for seven days the Lord Jesus Christ pointing to that said this in John 7 he said if any man thirst remember he said you got to be thirsty to want the presence of God in your life if any man thirst let him come unto me and drink. He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And this he spake of the Spirit. So to pray for the presence of God, you've got to have a strong desire, right? If you've got a casual desire or you can drink from the waters of the world, the broken cisterns, and that's satisfying your thirst, you won't spend much time with the Lord, will you? Any of us. Here's the thing, the early church, we're re we just read it in Acts, you're right there, 242, it says they continued steadfastly, and it says down in verse 46, it was daily in prayer, and why was that? Why did they do that? You know why? I've just been talking about it. The church, the early church, saw their need of God in their life. So look over a chapter in, in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. And look what it says. Acts chapter 1, look in verse 12. It says, Then the disciples returned they unto Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is from Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. It's a kilometer. It's not very far. You couldn't walk far on the Sabbath. And when they were come in, they went up into an upper room where abode both Peter and James and John and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon Zelotes, and Judas, the brother of James. And verse 14 says this, And these all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brethren. 
And why is this prayer meeting taking place? Simple. Just look at, we're in that chapter, look up in verses 4 to 5. Jesus has risen from the dead, says he's been showing himself for 40 days. In verse 4 it says, and being assembled together with them, Jesus commanded them. We said it was a command. He's not requesting. He commanded them that they should not depart from Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the promise of the Father, which he saith, you have heard of me. For John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. So he commanded them, you go to Jerusalem and wait. And waiting didn't mean they did nothing, did it? It didn't mean they were sitting around drinking lemonade and watching Monday Night Football. That's not what they did, did they? But here they are, they're waiting, and they're waiting to be empowered. That's what he said will happen. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. They're waiting for that. They're waiting to be filled. They're waiting to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. They're waiting for the one who had been promised to them. And who is this one? He would be another like Jesus, wouldn't he? That's what that word another, another comforter. It means another of the same kind because God is one. You can't have the Holy Spirit without having the Father and the Son. You can't divide God up. But he's not going to be limited like the Lord Jesus Christ was in, in an earthly body, would he? The Holy Spirit that came. He wouldn't just be able to be in one place at one time and have one conversation, even if it was with the group, one conversation at a time. This person that they're waiting for, the third person of the Trinity, would be the unlimited Holy Spirit. No limitations. And he would indwell, because of that, each one fully and individually, just like he does us. We don't have part of the Holy Spirit, do we? You can't have part of the Holy Spirit. And he would always be there and available to them. Jesus might have been, sometimes he'd be somewhere where they weren't, right? And they'd get a little bit afraid. But no, when you have the Holy Spirit, God himself living in you, you don't have to wonder where is the Lord. He's inside of us, always available to give us aid. Always available to give us comfort. Always available that we can have power when we need it. Always available to give us guidance. We don't have to go and look somewhere else. That doesn't mean you can't ask a brother to help you out, give you a little guidance. And he's always there, according to Romans 8, to give you assurance of your sonship. He's your inheritance that's been deposited in you. And that is why these people initially prayed in that upper room. They were getting hungrier and thirstier with each day. I guarantee it. And that's why they continued to pray. You know why? Because their need is continuous, isn't it? Their need is continuous. Their great need was always there, and it is always there for us every day, is it not? Let me ask you, are we not right now kind of a barren land in need of rain? Let me, let me ask you, do you, because I do, do you feel a thirst in your spirit for a refreshing rain from heaven? I do. Amen. I mean, I've been in meetings. I've been in, I've been in a revival meeting at the Billy Graham Center 
when that thing, the praise there was just about as dead as you could get for the most part. And one night, half the people left that meeting, and I stayed there, and I mean, just sovereignly, the Spirit of God just fell on that meeting. And I'm telling you, I'd rather be there than anywhere on earth when that happened. It was amazing. And I'm thinking those poor people that left because they just didn't like, well, it wasn't moving fast enough for them or something. And it was just a special time. And it's just like heaven coming down on earth. And that's what I'm saying. We don't need that. Y'all don't want that? I'll take your portion of it. Really, I will. <laughs> Let me ask you, do you feel a thirst in your spirit for a refreshing rain? Can we as a church cry out for what Peter called the times of refreshing that shall come from the presence of the Lord? Do we not want that? And I do. I really do. And can't we pray like we sing the song, Here's my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting in my soul. Have you had enough of the Lord? You got too much? Your cup's full? <laughs> but if you would turn back to Second Chronicles. You know, we're talking revival, I think. I guess that's what we're talking, isn't it? <laughs> So listen, here's a great revival text that everybody knows, but you don't always hear the context. You just hear the text itself quoted. But if you'll turn to 2 Chronicles 7, beginning in verse 11, it says, Thus Solomon finished the house of the Lord and the king's house, and all that came in to Solomon's heart to make in the house of the Lord and in his own house, he prosperously affected Affected, And the Lord appeared to Solomon by night and said unto him, I have heard thy prayer and have chosen this place to myself for an house of sacrifice. Verse 13, he says, If I shut up heaven that there be no rain, or if I command the locusts to devour the land, or if I send pestilence among my people, and most people have heard verse 14, If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and will forgive their sin, and will heal their land. Now mine eyes shall be open, and my ears attent unto the prayer that is made in this place. For now I have chosen and sanctified this house, that my name may be there forever, and mine eyes and my heart shall be there perpetually. So what's the context of verse 14? It's drought and pestilence, isn't it? A barren dryness and in the land. And so the land and the people of Israel desperately need rain, don't they? They're crying out for water. And here's the thing. Who has brought this dryness on them? Who has? God God has. He says, if I shut up the heaven, God brings drought and spiritual dryness. And why does he do that to a group of people? Why does that happen? And here's why. Because the people wander away from the Lord. They begin living in sin, and they aren't seeking him in prayer and humility. But God says, I'm not going to leave you that way, does he? So he leaves a solution for us. Let's read it again, verse 14. He says, if my people, if that happens to you and it's a dry land you're living in, a, you're in the barren wilderness spiritually, if my people which are called by my name, they're his people, shall humble themselves and pray 
and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. So there's sin involved. That's what's happened. Then he says, then God says, hey, I will hear from heaven. I'll forgive their sin and heal their land. And how is he going to bring that healing about? Is he going to send down a heavenly Bengay ointment and rub it on them? Is that what's going to happen? Is he going to send a divine crop duster? Is that, is that what's going to happen? No. How's he going to do it? He's going to do it by sending life-giving rain, isn't he? Water. He's going to pour out his water by rain on a dry land. That is symbolic of what? We've talked about it all day, Wednesday, all night. It's symbolic of the Holy Spirit, is it not? Amen. We're not talking literal water here, are we? I mean, they were in a sense then, but we're not talking about that now. We're talking about God's presence. That's the rain we need. God's spiritual refreshing. And let me ask you this. Do you know typically that when God calls his people, he said, if my people which are called by the name, what's the first thing he says to do? Humble themselves. I can't go through all the verses. That is, in a sense, code. It's not really even code. But when it talks about humbling yourself, what do you think that's talking about? Anybody want to guess? Fasting. There really is. It usually includes fasting when you humble yourself. I'll give you one verse, Psalm 35, 13. David wrote, I humbled my soul with fasting. And, you know, there's several kings, but when Ahab... Wicked old wicked King Ahab, when he heard of the disaster coming to his family, it said he humbled himself because of his great sin, and he got before the Lord with fasting. So humbling, affliction of soul, like it talks about in James 4, that is talking about fasting. And here's the thing you need to know. Fasting is a way of declaring your thirst before the Lord. So many of you I know know about Andrew Murray, lived back in the early 1900s, and he's mostly known for his devotional works, which I will say some of them I think are a little hard to understand. He's got some ones I really like, and he's got some I'm like, okay. But he, I'll tell you this, if you ever get a chance to read his biography, read it, because he is one of the most godly men that you will ever read about, and a true heart for the Lord and a true heart for God's people. Don't have time to get into that. But I want to read you this quote. Andrew Murray, I'm saying fasting is, is a way of declaring your thirst. Listen to this quote by Andrew Murray. Prayer is reaching out after the unseen. Fasting is let, letting go of all that is seen and temporal. So let me say that again. He says prayer is reaching out after the unseen. Fasting is letting go of all that is seen and temporal. Fasting helps express deepen and confirm the resolution that we are ready to sacrifice anything, even ourselves, to attain what we seek for the kingdom of God. It's a way of telling God, I am desperate for your presence. That's what you're doing when you fast. You're not trying to earn anything. It's like, I can't earn it. And I'm desperate, Lord, I'm letting you know, I'll let go of everything to get your presence in my life and in this church. Andrew Murray, I'll tell you, the man knows what he, knew what he was talking about because he wrote a book on revival, and he saw great revival take place in his ministry at his church. God really moved. I know a lot of you, too, have heard about Jonathan Edwards, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Don't read that if, you're, if it's a dark night and you're struggling. Just read something else. 
put VeggieTales in it to help you out more. Because it'll put the fear of God in you if you're reading it at the wrong time, I'm telling you. It's, it's a great message. But anyways, he was instrumental in the great awakening that took place in the colonial days. And I mean, that was a major for real. It's not like this stuff we hear about in America, dogs barking. Oh, I, won't, I don't even want to mention the place. It's, this was a for real thing, the great awakening that happened in the colonial days. But listen to this. He writes of children of his church that got saved during that revival. And all of them were under the age of 17. Children saved in this revival. And listen to what they did. They got together, these children under the age of 17, got together for fasting and prayer and saw the Spirit of God move among themselves. There you go, fellas. Get together with fasting and prayer. Children, could you imagine that? And we don't want to fast at all. You read church history, that has never been a part of when God's presence and spirit is moving that we don't pray and fast and don't corporately pray and fast. So you can make it a work, as I've said, and there's been things happening to where I know people, I know a guy down in Mexico some years back that was real popular and he's going on all these 40-day fasts and there's something about him, in my opinion, that was not right. I wouldn't want that guy laying hands on me. He's talking about coming off these fasts and levitating and all these things. It didn't witness with me that it's of the Lord. So I'm saying, you can go that direction, right? But like I said another time, we still got to deal with the fact that in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus Christ, our Lord, did not say, if you fast, did he? What word did he use? When. When you fast is what he said. So those, those children, they were thirsty. How thirsty are we if my people that are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face? So God promises Israel and thus us that if we meet the conditions, what did he say he would do? He would heal their land, which means what? He would send them rain, right? And we know that's true because what did he do on those 120 you don't think that was a spiritual rain to come on those people when he poured out his spirit and they began to speak with other tongues and the church is birthed and 3,000 people are saved and brought to the Lord and they're continuing and seeing signs and wonders take place all through the book of Acts? I mean, what do you think caused that? You think their land wasn't healed at that point if you want to look at it that way? And that's what he continually did all through the book of Acts. Let me ask you, how powerful is the united prayer of a church? We're going to look at that in the book of Acts. A church that prays in one accord. If you go back to Acts, turn to Acts chapter 4. We're just going to look at places in Acts. As far as we're saying, this is the, we're looking at the foundations of a New Testament church, the four pillars, the foundation, and one of them is prayer. So let's see how that worked in this early church. We're not even going to look at everything possible. But if you turn to Acts chapter 4... And we're going to look in verse 20, starting in verse 23, but what you have going on here up to verse 23 is Peter and John have just returned to the company of believers. They had, they had been arrested by the Sanhedrin for what? For the, the crime of healing a 40-year-old lame man. 
That's what they're arrested for. And they were commanded by the Sanhedrin not to teach in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't want him teaching. And so they threatened them, but they wouldn't punish him. Why? Because of the people. Because the people, unlike the leaders, glorified God for this healing that took place on this man. That's always the case. The problem's generally not with the people. It's with the leadership. Look what we have here, Acts 4, verse 23. And so I said, Peter and John, it says, verse 23, And being let go, they, Peter and John, went to their own company and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said unto them. And when they heard that, this is the church, what did they do? They lifted up their voice to God with one accord, didn't they? And that is the prayer pattern for the church. They lifted up their voices. We've already seen that in Acts 1, Acts 2, and here we have it again. They lifted up their voice in one accord because, once again, this church in the book of Acts is united for one purpose. So they have just experienced persecution, haven't they, for the first time. And here they're seeing that there is a biblical reason for that, and they are going to now they're going to petition God on their behalf, and they're lifting their voice as a result of that in one accord. So the first thing they do in this prayer, now here's some things we can learn. You look in verse 24. Here's the first thing they do. They acknowledge God as the sovereign creator of all things. Look in verse 24. And when they heard that, they lifted up their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God, which has made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And I'm saying that is, there are other biblical accounts. Hezekiah's prayer, Isaiah 63, I believe it is. Well, that is a good way to start a prayer to the Lord. Acknowledge who he is. Acknowledge his sovereignty. It'll edify you and it'll edify the Lord. You're the sovereign God, the creator. That's a way to start your prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You don't just jump into your daily bread, I hope. Give God the respect and honor that's due him. And that's what they're doing here, acknowledging that. And the second thing they do is they quote Psalm 2. They quote Psalm 2, and they let the Lord understand. They say, letting the Lord understand, we understand that this psalm right now is being performed in our lives. You spoke prophetically by David clear back there, and right now we're getting to live this history that you spoke about. That's what they're telling them. Look at verses 25 to 28 who by the mouth of thy servant David, verse 25, has said, and here's what David said, he prophesied, Psalm 2, why did the heathen rage and the people imagine vain things? The kings of the earth stood up, and rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ, for of a truth against thy, and here they say, here's what's happening now, of a truth against thy holy child Jesus, whom you have anointed both Herod and Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together for to do whatsoever thy hand and thy counsel determined before to come to pass. So they're saying the very thing you prophesied by David way back then, it is happening now, and we're getting to live it. And so then they go on to make their supplication to the Lord. They finally get to their request, and look what it says in verse 29. And now, Lord, they say, behold their threatenings. And grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. 
They're saying, look, Lord, behold their threatenings. And when you prophesied that in Psalm 2, you know what you said you would do, Lord? You said you would have them in derision, that you would laugh at these ones that are coming against your people in your name. And they're reminding them of that. Look at what they're saying. Look at how they're threatening us. They're pleading, God, we need you to intervene on our behalf. That's the first thing they say. And then they ask for what? They're not going to go hide in a the corner. They're done doing that, aren't they? They say, grant unto thy servants boldness to speak the word. And when they're asking that, where does that boldness that they're going to have, where does that come from? The Holy Spirit. It is not a natural boldness they're asking for, is it? And then he says, then they say what? Stretch forth thine hand. But when God stretches forth his hand, who are the instruments that he uses? It's them. And he's saying, but they know it's the Lord, right? Working through them. He says, stretch forth your hands to heal. And when those healings take place, they're saying it will be signs and wonders that will give glory to thy child Jesus. Now, let me ask you something. Is that a legitimate prayer for a 20th century church to pray? Or is that just a prayer we have to leave back in the first century and think, wow, that is really cool. What happened there? We're saying, let me ask you, is that a legitimate prayer for Shelbyville Christian Assembly to pray? And what was the result? What was the result of that prayer? Here they are. We know we go back to the beginning of this. What did it say they were doing? They were praying how? Just individually in their homes? They were praying all together, making this request to the Lord, this prayer how? All together in one accord, all united. And here's the results. Look in verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together. And they were all filled with the Holy Ghost, and they spake the word of God with boldness. The building was shaken. That's the first result. The building was shaken where they were assembled. And I like what a guy said about this. I really like this. You know what it doesn't say? It doesn't say the people were shaken, like we have in a lot of charismatic meetings, right? A lot of people doing a lot of shaking. The building was shaken. You know why? Because people can fall down and people can make themselves shake. But I'm going to tell you something. Only God can make a building shake, right? It gets rid of a lot of foolishness, doesn't it? <laughs> and the second thing that happened, it said they all, this is all of them that were assembled together, the 3,000. It doesn't say it was limited. What happened? They were all what? It says they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this is not a repeat of Acts chapter 2, is it? This is not that filling. But this is a fresh infilling and anointing. And Paul wrote, we know this, what did he write in Ephesians 5, 18? It's a command be filled with the Spirit. Before that, he says, don't be drunk with wine. Don't be filled with wine. He said, no, no, no. Be filled with the Spirit. And he's writing that to Spirit-filled Christians, isn't he? That is a present imperative, or if imperative is too big a word, that is a present command. Keep being filled with the Spirit. That's what the Greek would say, if you want to get all whatever about that, the Greek. Keep being filled with the Spirit, Paul wrote to the Ephesian church. He's saying experience to your fullest capacity the, spirituals, the Spirit's presence in your life. And guess what? If it's in Ephesians, it's a command to us, isn't it? 
we are commanded to presently keep on being filled with the Spirit. And the third thing, the third result of that prayer that we see is when you're filled with the Spirit as they were, what happens next? Remember we said who gives you that boldness? The Holy Spirit does, right? And it says then that they spake the word with boldness, right? It's boldness that comes from a heart that, that is right with God and filled with the Spirit, right? Because we know in Proverbs it says the righteous are bold as a lion, and so let me ask you, you're thinking, well, you left one off. No, I didn't. We're saying, how did God answer that prayer? Was the request for healings and miracles answered? And before you say yes, let me tell you where to look to see that it was answered. Look over in chapter 5 and verse 12. And it says there, here's how God answered that, and by the hands. And he, they said, stretch forth your hand. But we read in Acts 5.12, it says, By the hands of the apostles were many what? Isn't this what they prayed for? Signs and wonders wrought among the people. And here's why too. Look at the end of verse 12. Because they were all what? With one accord in Solomon's porch. So praying together in one place caused that building to shake and the church to be a to be filled anew with the Holy Spirit, did it not? And I ask again, is that possible today? I mean, really, do we really believe that? So let's look at another place, Acts 16. So the whole thing we're talking about today is pillar number four, prayer, isn't it? And Acts 16 is filled with prayer. It's a chapter of prayer. So look here, the first place we see it is Acts 16, look in verse 12, it says this, or we begin in 11. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we, that's Luke's writing here, came with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and verse 12, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and the colony, and we were in that city abiding certain days. And look what it says, verse 13. And on the Sabbath, we went out of the city by a riverside. What was going on there? Where prayer was wont to be made. So they're going there to pray. And we sat down. And it doesn't, I don't know whether they prayed or didn't pray, but they sat down and said, and spake unto the women which resorted thither. And do you know what happened? Then somebody got saved. Lydia. Lydia got saved, didn't she? And the next thing of prayer we have down in verse 16. Like I said, it's a chapter of prayer. Verse 16, And it came to pass as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with a spirit of divination met us, which brought her masters much gain in Thusthain. So every day as they're going to prayer, every day this girl is coming and tormenting them with what she's saying, right? Until finally Paul has had enough and he finally cast that spirit out of that girl. And that wasn't the end. I mean, people were not rejoicing about that at all, were they? Not the ones that were making money off that poor girl. They weren't happy at all. And so what does that do? That lands those two guys where? Lands them in jail. Lands them in jail. So we got down to verse 25, and we got more prayer going on. Paul's a praying man, isn't he? He really is. He's looking for prayer meetings everywhere, and here he's going to have one in jail. In verse 25, and it says, And at midnight... Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. 
Once again, they're singing praises unto God. And guess what happens as a result of that? Earthquake number two. It's a seismic revolution going on here in the book of Acts, right? And what caused that earthquake? What caused that earthquake? Now, <laughs> this isn't original with me, but I thought this was pretty good. This is commonly the way this is preached anymore. To get this picture, I'm not saying this is coming right for the word, but I thought it sounded pretty good. Now here they are, they're down there praying, and they're singing, and that's rising up to heaven, and it's filling the throne room of God more and more as they sing. And the Lord's asking the angel, what's that sound? Oh, that's Paul and Silas down there. They're bleeding, and that's where that music's coming from. And God's listening, and guess what happened? He begins to tap his foot. <laughs> And suddenly, it says in Acts, there was a great earthquake. <laughs> I like that. Because what does it say? The earth is his what? His footstool. You get him tapping to your music. <laughs> That's the way it works though, right? So, the jail doors flung open because God is there, right? And the chains fell off, didn't they? <laughs> because God is in their prayer and praise when they're praying corporately together, right? The two of them. Two instances of God coming and the earth shaking. And I was thinking, you know what? How many times did we experience it? And some of you all are too young to remember. But when we were at the old Clay Street Baptist Church, what did Brother Hamilton say? You'd be down there getting ready to come up and the floor would be shaking. He's afraid he's going to fall in on him. It wasn't so much the floor shaking, I'm trying, but we had the, the Lord was there, wasn't he? I mean, man, oh, man, I look forward to those praises when I first moved here. It was great. Not that I don't now, please. <laughs> okay, I'm not saying that. I'm telling you, when my wife and I first came down here and visiting Bobby Andrew, I, I mean, I'm just like, wow, I've never seen anybody like him. And where is he anyways? He needs to be back here, doesn't he? So Listen. What we're seeing here is there is power, isn't there? And it will bring God's presence. There is power in united faith and pr or prayer and praise. That's what we're seeing out of this all, isn't it? So let's look at one last account. Y'all can hang in with me here in Acts chapter 12 of the church praying in one accord. Acts chapter 12. And what we have going on here, James has been beheaded by Herod. And the Jews, not the Christians, they didn't think that was that great, but all the Jews liked that. And so Herod's like, man, if they like that so much, I think I'll get hold of Peter. He's another big top dog there, and we'll take his head off. So he's holding Peter to be awaiting his beheading. And what is Peter doing while he's waiting? You're in Acts 12, look down in verse 6. What's he doing? And when Herod would have brought him forth the same night, Peter was what? Sleeping. Now, that's somebody who's not too nervous about getting their head chopped off. Would you all be sleeping if you knew that was coming up the next day? Honestly? Or would you have one eye open? <laughs> be like that chicken I cut its head off. He had that one eye looking up at me. But here's the thing. Peter, what? He had not counted his life dear. And that tells you something else. He was filled with the Holy Spirit, wasn't he? Because you know when he wasn't? Would Peter have been that calm? Are you kidding me? Denied the Lord three times. He's nervous as you can get. So that's what God's presence and anointing will do. And so he had committed his soul to the Lord, hadn't he? Kind of like Caleb down there in Guatemala. That's what he told me. The Lord's got us down here. Shoot me in the leg. Shoot me in the head. I'm staying until I can't preach anymore. That's basically what he's telling me. 
And so here they're putting into practice Matthew 10, 28. Jesus said, Fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather, Jesus said, Fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And only the grace of God will enable you to overcome that. It really will. So here's the thing. Herod likes to cut off heads. Seems like it's kind of his hobby. So let me ask you, who else do we know that likes to cut off heads? ISIS. Right? So in light, let me ask you this. In light, we just celebrated the anniversary, the 14th anniversary of 9-11, didn't we? So in light of that, what is our protection against ISIS or Al-Qaeda? Well, let me ask you this. What did the early church do in Acts for Peter? Did they get themselves fully armed? And did they go in there and try to figure out a way, man, we'll just figure out a way that we'll get in Herod's palace or where he's holding, those, holding Peter, and we'll get us some concealed carried swords, and we'll go in there and we'll take care of those Roman soldiers. We can do it. Is that what they did? Man, one of their brothers is going to get killed. He had a wife, probably had kids. You think that's right? That he should have to die and they don't do anything about it physically? Well, what did they do? Look in verse 5, Acts 12, 5. What does it say? Peter, therefore, was kept in prison. But what happened? Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And while they're praying... He's sleeping. Angel had to wake him up big time. Smite him on the side. And so a lot of people don't read that account because they are surprised. They'll say, well, they must not have been praying in faith because when Peter shows up at the door, they can't believe it's him. And you're telling me they didn't pray in faith? Well, I think here's probably a good explanation for that. You know, a few chapters before that, who got stoned? Stephen, right? Did God deliver him? No. But he saw the Lord Jesus Christ when he's getting those stones are hitting him. That, that's a gracious way to die, isn't it? What a way to go. And then here they got the other case where somebody's being persecuted to the point of death, and that's James, and his head's cut off. So why would the church expect? They just figure this is persecution. He's dying a martyr's death. And Peter had already been told he was going to die a martyr's death, hadn't he? Yes, he had. And so they're just probably praying for him. God, give him the strength not to deny you. That's probably what they're praying Here's what happened. What did God say he'd do for the church when we pray? They got more than they were bargaining for from the Lord. Is that scriptural? It sure is. Listen to this, Ephesians 3.20. Now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, unto him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. Amen. So they were praying in faith. They just got exceedingly above that. I mean, how would they expect that? And only the power of God could cause that to happen, right? <laughs> so when we're threatened by persecution that's going to come from the world, and I believe we will at some point, whether it's ISIS, Al-Qaeda, China, or whoever, do we need to have ourselves armed to the teeth to protect our families? I know a lot of people think you're not a responsible Christian if you don't have a gun in your house, and you're a wimp. You're not a real man or not a real Christian man if you're not ready to shoot somebody that's coming in to do your family harm. I know a lot of people that think that way, but what about us? 
What about those Christians that I've, you see pictures of them on the news that are lined up on those seashores? And ISIS just has them all lined up and just knocks, cuts their heads off one by one. Is that not a good testimony? Are those guys wimps that they're humbly submitting to that with non-resistance and humility? That doesn't glorify God, I would ask. I'm sure those people have families. Or what if God wants to deliver someone? like he did the three Hebrew boys and Daniel and Peter. We see both cases, don't we? But either way, we're not going to bow the knee to what the Word of God says, how we're to act, are we? So if the Bible teaches non-resistance, and that's what our church is traditionally taught, non-resistance, then that is what we'll do. That's what Peter was doing, wasn't he? And is God not able to deliver us? Do we need guns and machetes? And whatever all else you want to say, for God to deliver us, turn to Ezra 8. This got me in trouble in at a class I had, old Ezra 8. I had the audacity to bring this up in a discussion on non-resistance. So what's happened here in Ezra 8 is King Artaxerxes had given Ezra and any Jew that wanted to go back to Israel, to Jerusalem, he says, you have his permission to go. Anybody that wants to go, you have my full permission to go, and I'll give you silver and gold for the temple. And here's the thing. It was a dangerous journey for them to go because it was a long journey, and there were a lot of bandits along the way just itching to get their silver and gold. And so what happened? You know, here's that four-letter dirty word again in the Bible. We're going to read fast. But look, here it is. Look in Ezra 8, look in beginning in verse 21. Here's what Ezra did. Here's how he took care of this situation, this dangerous long journey. He says, Then I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava, that we might, there I told you, afflict means to fast, that we might afflict ourselves before our God because they're trying to earn something. No, to seek of him a right way for us and for, they've got their little children with them. He's not a man. He's not even going to take weapons or soldiers to defend his little children. He's not a man. Is that what we think about this with Ezra? Little children going on this trip, and they're not bothered turning down armed help. So we began to seek of him a right way for us and for our little ones and for all our substance. Verse 22, Ezra says, I was ashamed to require of the king a band of soldiers and horsemen to help us against the enemy in the way because... We had spoken unto the king, saying, The hand of our God is upon all them for good that seek him, but his power and his wrath is against all them that forsake him. And look what he goes on to say, verse 23, So we fasted and besought our God for this, and God's like, that's just a dead work. What does it say at the end of verse 23? And he was entreated of us. Hmm, Silah. And then look down in verse 30. So took the priest and the Levites, the weight of the silver and the gold and the vessels to bring them to Jerusalem unto the house of our God. And look what it says, verse 31. Then we departed from the river of Ahava on the twelfth day of the first month to go unto Jerusalem. And look what it says there. The hand of our God was upon us supernaturally. And he, God, delivered us 
from the hand of the enemy and of such as lay in wait by the way. So you think there were not real people waiting in real time to do some real danger and harm to these people? There were, just like today. No difference. But what does he say here? He says the hand of our God was upon us and protected them supernaturally. In verse 32, and we came to Jerusalem. They actually made it and abode there for three days. So will God not grant us deliverance if we unite in prayer and seek him for that? And what else, like I said, what else did they do? They fasted. They were serious about it. They just didn't take his protection for granted. They were desperate, weren't they? We're talking about desperate prayer. That's what it's all about. We need God for everything to, to walk in his light, to walk in his word. You can't walk the Sermon on the Mount. You can't love your enemies without God's presence and power in your life. You can't do any of the Sermon on the Mount without the presence of the Holy Spirit. It's impossible for a natural person. It is. Let me ask you, though, do you think this united prayer that God will come and manifest himself is just for protection? The church uniting in prayer? What about healing? Let's turn to James 5, if you would, please. So you got Hebrews, and then James follows right after that. James chapter 5. Beginning in verse 13. So we're talking about corporate prayer for each other. James 5.13, it says, Is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Is any merry? Let him sing psalms. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith shall save or heal the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. And typically, we're stopped there. But look, he goes on to say, Confess your faults, verse 16, one to another. And what does he say next? Pray one for another that you may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heaven gave rain, and the earth brought forth its fruit. So that verse 16 there, pray one for another. Remember I told you the New Testament is filled with one another's. We need each other to pray for one another. And here, praying for one another is encouraged. And you know what that is implying? That this person that was prayed for by the elders of the church isn't maybe up yet. So it says the Lord will raise him up, but guess what it doesn't tell you? When does it? Reread it. The prayer of faith will heal the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And we know faith has nothing to do with time. It has to do with believing the promise of God that he will. It's an expectation. He will do what he said. Amen. I may be laying here for another day. I don't know. I haven't got up yet, but I will get up. The Lord will raise me up. That's what faith says. Amen. If it isn't today, it may be in the next minute. It may be whenever, but I'm expecting it to happen. He just doesn't say when. So if you're laying there a week after being anointed for oil, as long as you're still breathing, it's still working. Amen. It's not over, right? Well, listen, but they're praying on behalf of somebody who's been anointed by the elders, and it's a, 
And this is after, if, if that James 5 to me, it's like the clearest promise of healing you could have. Is it not? I mean, that is as clear as it gets. There is no ambiguity there. Anoint with oil, the prayer of faith will heal the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. I mean, a second grader could easily understand that and grasp hold of it. No ambiguity, right? But with that clear promise, there still apparently could be a need of intercession, which is why James went on to say. So you say, hey, don't we just pray once for the promises? Yes. That's what I believe. We pray once as far as asking goes. So we don't keep repeatedly ask God for the same things. We don't keep having to be anointed with oil a dozen times because that means you don't believe it, does it? But what that doesn't mean is that we can't intercede on behalf, praying in the Spirit for somebody that is still in a trial. And that's why he goes on to give the example of Elijah. You know why? Elijah had already had a very clear promise that at his word it would rain. But guess what? He's on his knees praying seven times. Elijah's sending that servant seven times. Come back and tell me what you see. Is that doubt and unbelief? He's on his face praying the whole time. Does that mean he didn't pray the prayer of faith? What you need to do, I'm telling you, is go back and listen to Jeff Lang's message on prayer. And I'm serious about that because he dealt with what I'm talking about right now. It's not a lack of faith to continue to intercede and do warfare in the spirit on a promise you claimed. You're still holding on to it. That's not asking again. It really isn't. And sometimes some warfare needs to take place, doesn't it? Daniel's on his face praying, and the angel said, you were hurt from day one, but it took me 21 days. There's warfare going on up there, and I believe Daniel's prayers had something to do with that angel. That's the way God has ordained things to finally get to him. And so if he'd have quit praying on day 10, guess who would have never made it to old Daniel, that angel? And so what are we saying here with what we've looked at in Acts 12, James 5, and Ezra 8? We're saying that united prayer and fasting by God's people can bring deliverance and healing. You know, we brought before you guys a request by Brother Jerry and his wife Beth to pray for him, right? They're in a trial, and he's been a friend of this church, isn't he? And here's the thing you've got to understand. You put yourself in that man's shoes. He, he's looking, he's staring by himself at a major trial for two days. And any of you in here that have watched your mate go through a serious trial or someone else, right, you can relate to that because I'm telling you that is the most helpless feeling in the sense of what I'm saying. So you're trusting God, but I'm telling you, especially at night, you feel that big. And those nights when you're in a trial with your mate, it just seems like the clock moves like paint drying, doesn't it? It's like, oh, praise God when I see some daylight because this is the longest night I've ever had to deal with. I'm hanging on, Lord, and you pray for the grace of God to give you the strength to hold on and see his faithfulness. And it's not easy, is it? It really isn't. But here's the thing. As Jake said, he had two churches standing with him, praying with him, as we said back at the beginning, standing with somebody that is standing on the promises of God. And our doctrine teaches us that we can do that, doesn't it? The teaching we've had. You're not going to get that help from other churches. 
He got there's two churches here, us in Virginia, that are holding on with him, united in a prayer for deliverance for Sister Beth. And do you think that made a difference? Sister Hamilton, she had texted me. She called the Guthrie's to request prayer for him after our meeting. And here's what she texted me. I hope she doesn't mind me sharing this. But she said, Jake said this. Carolyn Guthrie told me they had a word of knowledge in their prayer meeting last night for internal problems. Jake shared that. But he didn't share this. And it was followed by intense intercession. Couldn't remember the last time that happened. And who's bringing on that intense intercession on behalf of the Fabishes? The Spirit of God. Isn't he? you got willing people, but it's the Spirit of God prompting willing people to intercede in a serious situation for a brother. People shouldn't be on their own on serious trials like that. They shouldn't be. And so we also, as a church, we prayed here, didn't we, Wednesday night? And hopefully, you all went home praying. You should have if you didn't. And so the next morning, I'm sitting there with the brother the next morning, and I get a text. I think, I think it was exactly about 930 and I'm sure that had been a dark night for Brother Jerry Fabish, a really dark night. And I received this, this text from him, and it's a picture of his wife sitting there outside at a table with the biggest smile you'd ever want to see on her face. And it <laughs> got that smile, and he said that he's got, he made her a smoothie oatmeal and toast with honey. Now, all I'm telling you is I doubt if she's smiling because of his cooking. <laughs> I really doubt it. Move the oatmeal, I'd be like, yeah, get me something else. <laughs> I just better to trial, you know. Maybe she likes it. But here's what he texted me to tell you all here. This is his message to this church. He said, tell the brethren the prayer of faith still heals the sick and the Lord raises them up. We are so thankful for the effectual, fervent prayers of the righteous. Amen. Amen. I'm telling you, that's a testimony there. It really is. So our God released Peter from his prison because of the prayers of the saints, and our God released the Fabishes from their prison, their trial, right? Because of our effectual prayers and the prayers of other saints and other churches, right? And so what do the prayers of people that are united in one accord, accord what do they do on the behalf of others? This... The church is never made to be individualistic. Yeah, there are times we have to walk through trials on our own. We do. There's times we don't need to let the world know what we're going through. But there's times when we need our brothers and sisters, don't we? We need each other. We're, that's the way God's designed it. We're social beings. But listen to this. Leviticus 26, 7-9 says this. The Lord wrote, You shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And Five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight. Well, we had at least a hundred playing there, didn't we? I'd say at least a hundred. And your enemies shall fall before you by the sword, for I will, God says this, I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful, and God says I will establish my covenant with you. So in conclusion, I encourage Shelbyville Christian Assembly to pray in one accord to seek for God's presence here. Because I believe we need the presence of the Holy Spirit in a revival outpouring. 
We really need Him, don't we? And do we not want to experience a time of refreshing from the Lord? We do. Because I'll tell you, it will affect our worship, our fellowship, and even what we're doing right now in ways you could not even imagine. We've just scratched the surface. I'm not just saying that. Of the potential. I mean, if you're going to say we're the book of Acts, then okay. But I'm saying that's the pattern, isn't it? You know, I think we shouldn't be satisfied till we're seeing that. That's why God's put it in there. And as a result of that, God's presence being here, we will see the gifts start operating by the sovereign will of the Holy Spirit. It's not going to be us trying to have some word that everyone recognizes, hey, brother, that is just not the Lord. That's just you, whatever. Oh, no. When it's healing and miracles and those kind of gifts operating, it's going to be like that building shaking. Only God can do that. Amen. Right? And then also, we got missions people going out. I'm saying, I'm great with that. I really am. Our missions people will be going out like they did in the book of Acts. They'll be going out in the power and presence of the, of the Lord. And conversions will be happening. And healings will take place. And deliverances will happen. Because I'm telling you, it's happening with other mission groups throughout the world. Because I've read books to where, hey, the, the Baptist down there with no baptism of the Holy Spirit and these people need help, and they, they say, hey, go over to the Pentecostals because they can get you delivered to this spirit because they don't have all these medications like we do here to take. And so if God doesn't deliver this child of theirs or this brother from this spirit, there is no deliverance. So that's the potential we have in our missions, don't we? <laughs> and we're also going to see God's miraculous deliverance in persecution. Just hold it on. It's getting ready to come. I want to say God has placed the account of the early church in the book of Acts, and it is not just as a history lesson. <laughs> but it's the pattern and principle for the way he wants his church to function. We're back to Acts 2.42, right? How does he want us to function? Learning the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, the breaking of bread, and last but not least, but vitally, the prayers of the saints, right? Prayer. And that is going to be the foundation of Shelbyville Christian Assembly. Amen? Amen. Amen. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we just thank you, Lord, that you inspired Luke to write this account in Acts so that we do see the pattern of how you want your New Testament church to operate and to function and to pray and to seek your face because of our great need. And I just ask you, Lord, that you'll just take this word and just make it real to all of us and that you'll just create a thirst and a desire here that we can just experience your presence in all the ways you want to manifest yourself and that we can say we know for real that God is in our midst. And we will be rejoicing as a result. I just pray that for this church, Lord, and just ask that you'll hear that prayer. And just ask your blessing will be on all of us today and us as a church as we go forth. And that we'll think about your word. We'll draw an eye to you. We'll deal with things in our lives that need dealt with so that we can more fully experience your presence here with us. And we just thank you that you will do that for us. And you have been faithful to bring us this far. You'll continue to be faithful to keep us. And we do that in Jesus' name. Amen.